Hello, and welcome to Out West, the official podcast of the Western Governors Association, a bipartisan organization representing the governors of the 22 westernmost states and territories. I'm Jim Ogsbury, Executive Director of WGA. This episode of Out West is part of a series focusing on the WGA Invasive Species Data Mobilization Campaign, which encourages land managers, landowners, conservation groups, and NGOs to standardize and share invasive species data in the West. Today's podcast explains how data is used to define and count invasive species across the U.S. In this episode, Bill Whitaker, Senior Policy Advisor at WGA, speaks with Annie Simpson, a biologist and information scientist at the U.S. Geological Survey. They will discuss how the country's list of invasive species are compiled and why sharing data is crucial to that effort. Hello, everybody. This is Bill Whitaker, a Policy Advisor for the Western Governors Association, here with another podcast to help support the Western Governors work on invasive species in the Western Governors Invasive Species Data Mobilization Campaign. And we are, as part of this podcast series, going around and talking to some of the Wests and some of the nation's leading experts working on invasive species issues and asking them about what they do, why working on invasive species is such an important issue, and why invasive species data is so central to that and how people can get more involved and help sharing data and helping decision makers make good decisions with that data. I am joined today by Annie Simpson, a biologist and information scientist with the U.S. Geological Survey. So, Annie, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thanks, Bill. Thank uh-huh. you for asking me to be on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, and thank you for being here. It's, it's great to have you. So, can we just start off? Can you tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you do at USGS? Sure. So, I have a master's in entomology. For those of you who don't know what that means, it's the study of insects. And I also have a master's degree in library science. I grew up in a really small town in New York State, northern New York State, almost Canada. And once I got onto a graduate school course in the tropics, I fell in love with the tropics. So I actually fell in love with Costa Rica specifically. I moved there and I stayed there for 20 years. I married a Costa Rican. I raised a family there. And I worked for a private company there in ecotourism. And also, I specialized in guiding and marketing ecotourism trips to Costa Rica. But then, with the millennium, I returned to the United States with my two children and started working at USGS in 2000 as a contractor. And I became a federal employee at USGS in 2003. I really think that USGS is a wonderful place to work because we provide the science support for a lot of Department of Interior agencies that are responsible for regulations and stewardship of our lands. And USGS also has partnerships with other government agencies, with academia, with the private sector. And the USGS vision really is to provide reliable science for our changing world. And how did you end up working on invasive species? Did you pick invasive species or did invasive species pick you? They picked me. When the first presidential decree about invasive species was published in the year 2000, the USGS responded to the more intense interest in the problem of invasive species. And my organization within the USGS said, hey, Annie, why don't you work with invasive species data? Because I was already working with biological data. And truthfully, I think it's a very difficult field. 
And I probably would have chosen something else, but it was the opportunity of the time, and it was definitely very interesting and challenging. As a person who works on invasive species, I can agree with you that it is it is a challenging field. Part of that challenge is because there are so many invasive species, and there are more every day potentially coming into the U.S., and oftentimes once they're here, they're here to stay. It's, uh, it, it is tough. They're, they can be hard to eradicate, so it's, they become a fact of life. But speaking of the number of invasive species and the challenges that pose, you were the lead on a first-of-its-kind project to list all of the invasive species in large parts of the U.S. Can you tell me how that project got started? Well, yes, I can tell you how that project got started, but I also have to frame it differently. The U.S. Um, USGS list that you're referring to is actually a broader list. It's a list of all non-native species that are established in the United States. And... It, it got started because there was an information gap, really, about non-native species and about invasive species. So I'd sort of like to clarify, non-native species are species that come from somewhere else and become established in a foreign land and do reproducing populations. Some of them become invasive and some of them just lay dormant and don't really cause problems. So our project got started to fill in the basic information about non-native species because lots of monitoring data that is collected, has previously been collected in the U.S., doesn't even really take into account whether the, the species they're recording are native or non-native. So we decided that really is something we wanted to provide scientists with, basic building block information about whether a species is non-native and whether or not it's established. So the criteria to be included on the list it means that you have to be non-native to all of the region in question. In our list, there's three regions, Alaska, Hawaii, and the lower 48 states, the conterminous United States. And that means that, for example, bullfrogs that are native to the southeast of the United States but are invasive in Montana, they aren't on the list because they are native in some part of the lower 48. So the criteria what we set up for this list is something that I'll discuss a little further in more detail. But it's something that is makes it easier to, to get a resource that people understand the complete reason why something is on the list, and then they can also help submit more information to the list, depending on their, on their knowledge. That's really interesting. You talked about building blocks that this list provide the building block for scientists. I had never thought about it in those terms. For my work on uh, invasive species, talking to people who work on this, it's, it's knowing what's there, what's not, and just knowing what you're dealing with is really, really a challenge. So you mentioned definitions and the difference between an invasive species and a non-native species. Is there a strict scientific definition? How did you make that differentiation? Well, since I work for the federal government and that first executive order defined invasive species, my organization follows that definition, which is it is a plant or an animal, disease, or some organism that is not native, in other words, introduced to the area in question, and it is causing or it is likely to cause harm, whether that's to the economy, to the environment, or to human health. And then how many entries are there on the list? How many oh, non-native species are there in the U.S.? We've, we've got kind of a large list. So in, in names... So remember, it's three lists in one. So there's 11,174 names on all three lists. But when you take out the duplicates, because there's 
you could have up to three names. Mm -hmm. There's just over 10,000 unique names. In it. And this is at the species or subspecies level. That is a lot of names to keep track of. That is. is a lot of individual species. How do you even count those? And how do you keep track of that much information? <laughs> well, challenge on counting them is related to their taxonomy. So you go to scientific publications and you find that there's a lot of species names that have changed over time. So we wondered, you know, what do you call something now? And what you call it doesn't change the fact that it's non-native. So we're making a list. We needed a taxonomic authority. And fortunately, we were able to refer to the Integrated Taxonomic Information System, ITIS. And they have a database that tracks the latest name of all species that are in the United States and also all of the previous names that that species has ever been called. So we were able to narrow down the list. We didn't have to do 16 or 20,000 names because we took the itis accepted name and we have it on, on the list and people, and we have the reference number for itis so they can go to itis and see what the historic names might be. So big challenge on these numbers is what you call it, and is it non-native, and is it established? I didn't know that there was a master list of species. That, that is itself a, of a naming of species. That has to be a huge lift. I also know, from what I know about scientists, they love to debate. They love to have discussions. And so I can imagine some of the discussions on names and whether something is a species or two species, etc. I'm sure yeah. that can get fierce. I'm sure people listening to this podcast, at least some of them, will say, Itis doesn't have all the names, all of the species in the United States. And that's true. I should have said almost all. It's especially difficult when you have taxonomists that are discovering new species every day. It's hard to keep the list to up to date. And also they're discovering relationships that weren't as clear previously. So itis changes daily. Well, not daily, maybe weekly. And the taxonomy of the different specific groups changes. There's another challenge related to a non-native species list because ITIS strives to include all of the names of the species in the United States. Well, if you're doing a non-native species list, by definition, these are species that are not in the United States. So our efforts also feed into ITIS to include names that might not actually be there. In fact, right, right now, it's maybe a quarter of the names in our list aren't found in ITIS yet because they're relatively new in the United States or because they're from a group where the taxonomy is unclear or evolving too quickly. There must be new invasive species coming into the country or coming to different regions every day. How do you keep up on that? So there are two people that are currently reviewing the literature, the scientific literature, each week to determine what names need to be added to the list. We also have to make ongoing taxonomic adjustments like I described because accepted names are updated or they're discovering that there might be two species that are actually the same species, so you join those, uh, you choose one of the names or create a third name for those two taxonomic entities. In addition to the peer-reviewed literature that we search each week, there's several databases that we're still reviewing in order to reconcile our list with other compiled lists, like there is a list of forest pests, there is a list of non-native invasive amphibians and reptiles. Some of them have global scope, and so we need to look at small part or smaller part. Some of them are regional in scope, so we have to determine where they fit in our list. It's complicated. It certainly does sound complicated. 
How many invasive species, new species, enter into the U.S.? It might be impossible to know. Well, I know that if you asked me that question 100 years ago, it would have been 100, 100 times fewer. Because in the last 100 years, the globalization, the communication of goods and species among the countries of the world has increased at least 100 and with the increase in trade, globalization, that's increased the rate of introductions of non-native species every country. And because the United States is a very large trading partner with probably more countries than any other country on the planet, we have the largest threat for species entering, new species entering to, to the country. Because I'm not in a part of a regulatory organization, I don't have access to the the number of interventions that happen at U.S. ports, but there are a lot, and there are a lot of people that are trained to try to stop them, the non-native species, whether they're microbes or whether they're a boa constrictor that's on a, a raceme of bananas. They're, they're inspectors trained to detect the introductions, and there's an awful lot that escape. Well, yeah, and I'm sure some you don't know about until a year later when they're starting to really grow and become established. Okay, so now that the list has been created, how are people going to use it? How are land managers, private landowners, companies, everyone who's concerned about this issue, how are people going to utilize this list? Well, I want to reiterate the difference between a native, uh, a non-native species list and an invasive species list. So we need an authoritative non-native species list as the basic building block for invasive species science. And that's because being a non-native is the precursor to becoming invasive. So for many areas of the country, this information was not really widely known until now. So our list is being used by many regional groups and people studying only some species. It serves as a starting point for their inventories, for modeling, and in exercises to prioritize what species on the non-native list may eventually become invasive and which ones are most likely to cause the most harm. To make informed decisions about invasive species, the decision makers must have access to reliable data that are compared and combined in a consistent and non-biased way. So there are a lot of species data that are collected for many different purposes using many different protocols, but combining them to generate good invasive species data, it has to be a group effort among many data managers, and it must also the data must be processed following data standards, such as the NAMA mapping standards that data managers have agreed to, to use in their database management. So there's a lot of data being collected at local and regional levels about invasive species. And to get a better picture, throughout the West and also at a national level, every local and regional data owner needs to contribute. They really need to integrate their data by contributing to the WGA Invasive Species Data Mobilization Campaign. That integrate, integrated data, once it's there and combined in a non-biased and consistent manner using standards, that data will be even better than the sum of its parts. And that's what data synergy is all about. You mentioned that using this list to project risk. How do people predict what species, non-native species, is going to become invasive? And how do, people, how do people make those risk assessments? Risk assessment is a science in itself. So you set up a series of criteria 
about what is important about a species, what makes it aggressive. It, if you're talking about plant species, you might set a list of criteria such as how long does it take for it to come to seed? How long does it take for that seed to be an adult again and reproduce? How many seeds does it produce? So you get a, a series of experts to create a list of criteria about potential harm. And then you take species by species, the parameters, you know, how many seeds does it produce? How quickly do they come to flower? And do they have any toxic chemicals that they produce? Is the sap corrosive to humans? Is it poisonous to animals? What are the effects that the species might have that it makes it aggressive? And you, you, in doing a risk assessment, you assign a number to whether or not that species will become threat. There are large groups of people that specialize in risk assessments in different organizations. They publish the results for, it's also dependent on where the species is. If the climate isn't um, conducive to their reproduction, then it will be less of a threat in that area. So the parameters are pretty broad, but specific, and there's risk assessments that are quantitative, and there's those that are qualitative. And then there are usually the results are posted for public consumption by land managers to determine which of the species are most important to control. That sounds like a tremendously complicated, tremendously difficult, um, you really need a lot of scientific firepower to do a risk assessment for one, and you've got 11,000 plus species. That is a ton of work to do this. This is true, and that's why people take subsets. Often, when you're doing a risk assessment, you are a taxonomic area specialist. You're a botanist worried about plants coming in. Or you're a mammologist that wants to be sure that the existing species aren't outcompeted by an introduced species. So you have, from our list, you would take only a subset of the list. The list that is that occurs where you are, this is one reason why a database such as Bison, Biodiversity Information Serving Our Nation, which is a species mapping application, that is often used with, in combination with our list to see where these species are occurring. And then that, the subset that is int of interest to the scientist, maybe they're looking at plants. Um, they might take the plants that are on the list that occur in their area and then do a risk assessment on that. It's important often for risk assessments to be done in natural areas. So Bison also has a layer that marks the protected areas of the United States. That's the PAD US database is incorporated in Bison. So you get the geographic area in question, you see how many species occur there in Bison, and you see how many of those are non-native from the non-native species list. So this is an example of how Different databases that are made for different purposes can be combined to save the decision makers of the region. It saves them effort. It makes their work easy if they can have diverse resources that can be combined to narrow their task. It's amazing how many people are working on this issue. I've been working on invasive species for five years, and I'm still learning things from the people who are counting the number of non-native species, the risk assessments to the people and trying to come up with 
different treatments for them to the people actually out there in the on the field spraying weeds. It is a massive effort in the NCCs. It's a massive threat to the ecosystems and economies. So it's definitely important work. Sure. So it's being more widely understood that invasive species are really a persistent and insidious threat to our very way of life. Twenty years ago, there was a scientific estimate made by scientists from Cornell University, and their modeling team determined that at that time, invasive species were causing $1.4 trillion of damage at a global level. Each year, this was happening over and over. So to put that into perspective, if we rank countries globally, according to their gross domestic product, or GDP, Canada comes in 10th, according to the International Monetary Fund. And Canada's GDP today, not 20 years ago, but today, is $1.7 trillion. So each year, invasive species globally are almost as expensive as all of Canada's gross domestic product. So to me, simply from a financial point of view, people should care about invasive species as an issue, as an important issue, and they should do their part to prevent and to control them. That's amazing that's to hear that invasive species every year is like removing a Canada from the world economy. That's a big deal. And notice that I was doing 20 years ago data. It hasn't been updated. It's probably higher now. And I was comparing it with gross domestic product of Canada today. That's so. a huge impact. Yeah. Uh, I think that does really put it in perspective. And at a personal level, I feel like everyone's had some place in their life that's been impacted by invasive species. Can you tell me about any place that you know and love that's been impacted by invasives? Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt, the one species that has impacted me personally is Dutch elm disease. The peaceful, really shady and nice little neighborhood where I grew up was totally changed because every elm tree on the street where I grew up was cut down as they became infected with this disease that was imported from Europe and is carried by Dutch elm beetles. Of all the kinds of invasive species, I think that insects and diseases are the most difficult to control and often cause the most damage. So what were some of the surprising outcomes of your research as you pulled together this list? Well, obviously, one of the big surprises was its size. The sheer number of species that the names that qualify was surprising. We were only talking about species-level names and subspecies names, and we came up with 10,000 unique names for these three different areas. It was also pretty amazing to me that Hawaii, Hawaii has 0.3% of the total land area that was examined, and it contains more than half of the species that are on the list. So Hawaii has really suffered a lot more than other regions of the United States from non-native species introduction. And the final surprise was, maybe it shouldn't have been so surprising, but the 1,200 peer-reviewed and databases authorities that we were using to make the list, the authorities didn't always agree. So we had to sort of make decisions and get more of a consensus when there's a disagreement about what, whether or not a name belongs on the list. There's a word called cryptogenic. That means that it is a species that is of unknown origin. So some people were very likely to put 
a species that's cryptogenic onto a non-native species list. But we decided that unless we know that this species doesn't belong here, doesn't naturally occur here, if it's an unknown, it doesn't belong on the list. So that was something that we had to come up, up with that uh, sometimes the experts didn't agree. So a cryptogenic species could be some bug that you find and you don't know if it's been here since the dawn of time or if it came over 100 years ago on a boat. Right. That would be tough to figure out. Well, the, the toughest group for the cryptogenic species were marine species because of the nature of them being hidden and because ships move around a lot. There are species that today, they're not sure whether or not they belong where they are. Mm-hmm. I always think it's interesting in invasive species management. So one of the things the Europeans settled, there have been, they've been bringing invasive species with them this entire time. And, you know, is, is it how do you differentiate the species that have been here now for 400 years versus the ones that are native? Is it, is it possible to, to tease that out? This is another point of discussion. Since we're talking about species that can cause harm, often arbitrarily people talk about 1492 as the date when if something is here since Columbus's arrival, it's native. But some people think it should only go back 100 years. And it's, it's sometimes difficult to determine that. And our list, our criteria goes back to what any authority asserts. So when you have disagreement, you go with the majority. In general, the, the date is pre-Columbian. If it's pre-Columbian, it's native. And if it's post-Columbian, it's non-native. Arrived after Columbus. The other thing is they find that most important when it's a species that ends up causing harm. And it also, there's an example of a species that we know is non-native here, but it's not on our list because it came from Japan in the detritus after the tsunami, came to the west coast. It's a fish, and they're swimming and populating the Pacific Northwest, but it's been determined that the water in the Pacific Northwest is so cold that this species can't reproduce. Hmm. So it doesn't make our list because it's not it's not fitting the criteria of established. Hmm. It's not it's not it doesn't have a reproductive population. Hmm. And that's some of what I remember from my intro biology courses in college is that uh, once you really get down into the into the details on some of those species um in the scientific arguments like that particularly on things to trying to figure out what what is a species or how you define what um to differentiate one breaks in one group from another it gets really very complicated it is so very complicated I, I i wish you luck on that and um i it must take a lot of a lot of patience and forbearance well, to work through all that the people who work on the list it, it, it helps if you're a librarian you have to be very detail oriented yeah and we have very specific checklists of criteria that have to be followed for, to, for inclusion. It, it seems like you would need to have the librarian mindset, which is perhaps why yeah. I'm not the person doing it, because <laughs> I would struggle. So, Annie, thank you for taking part in this interview today. It's been really fascinating to learn about all the work that you're doing and um, all the importance of all invasive species management and data management. So, I wish you luck on updating and keeping track of that list. That seems like a Big effort, and I wish you luck in your next ventures. Thank you, Bill. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Out West, presented by the Western Governors Association. To learn more about our ongoing work on WGA's Invasive Species Data Mobilization Campaign, please visit westgov.org. And be sure to join us next time as we continue to discuss significant issues facing the Western United States. Finally, WGA would like to thank Annie Simpson for sharing her expertise on invasive species data. Happy trails, everyone.